0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum where for 27 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues, and ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis and I'm the moderator of today's program. It is my pleasure to welcome the first speaker in the forum's fall 2007 series. Dr. Elaine Pagels is a preeminent figure in the theological and biblical study community whose groundbreaking research on early Christianity has earned her international acclaim. While a young researcher at Barnard College, she exploded the myth of the early Christian church as a unified movement, changing forever the historical landscape of one of the world's great religions. Her findings were published in the best-selling book, The Gnostic Gospels an analysis of 52 early Christian manuscripts that were unearthed in Egypt in 1945. The Gnostic Gospels won both the National Book Critics Circle Award and the National Book Award and was chosen by the Modern Library as one of the 100 best books of the 20th century. Dr. Pagels earned a BA in History and an MA in Classics from Stanford University and a PhD in Religion from Harvard University. She is currently the Harrington Spear Payne Professor of Religion at Princeton University. She's the author of a number of articles and books, including Beyond Belief, The Secret Gospel of Thomas, and her most recent, Reading Judas, The Gospel of Judas and the Shaping of Christianity. Her writings explore the origin, the evolution, and the meaning of Christian thought, and provide fresh insight into complex issues that have engaged people of faith from generation to generation. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum Elaine Pagels.
1: Thank you Thank you so much. I'm, I'm just delighted to be here and, and appreciate the very gracious welcome in this beautiful place and with the music we've just heard. And in the short time that we have I'd like to share with you the fascination of this archaeological discovery of which we just heard, which has been changing our understanding of, of early Christianity. Now I first heard about this discovery when I went to graduate school to find out about the origins of Christianity, and I was very surprised that the professors of New Testament had file cabinets full of Gospels I'd never heard about, like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip, and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, and now, of all things, the Gospel of Judas. Um, These texts, most of them, were discovered in 1945, the same year that the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, but these were much more surprising. Um, They were found in Egypt when an Arab farmer accidentally dug up a six-foot jar, And inside, he found 52 ancient texts that go back to the beginning of the Christian era. The Gospel of Thomas may be the most intriguing of those, to me at least. Um, It begins with the words, These are the secret sayings of the living Jesus, and his disciple Thomas wrote them down. Now, did Jesus have secret teaching? Well, the, the Gospel of Mark, in Mark four ten and 11, said he did teach his disciples privately things that he didn't teach in public. Does the Gospel of Thomas contain that teaching? We really don't know. Uh, if it does, we never would have known about it since nearly 2,000 years ago. This Gospel and others were challenged um, and censored, and many copies had been destroyed and lost. Now, I just want to say this is not what I expected when I went to graduate school. It wasn't what I was hoping to find. On the contrary, like most people who who study the beginning of the Christian movement, I was imagining that we could find a kind of golden age, if we go back to the beginning of early Christianity, we could find out what Jesus said when he wandered around the hills of Galilee with his disciples, uh, that it would be a simpler and purer and an easier picture of early Christianity, but suddenly we found ourselves in a far more complicated and actually a far more interesting world than any of us imagined. And after I was working with many other people there to edit and translate and publish those early texts, I wrote the book called The Gnostic Gospels as a kind of first take. But it's taken us a long time to begin to rethink what we thought we knew about the early Christian movement. So, in the few moments we have today, I just would like to look with you uh, at the Gospel of Thomas and try to sketch out some of what this means for the way we understand Christianity today. Now, many of you know that this unknown Gospel was originally written in Greek, like the New Testament Gospels, but it was found in in a Coptic translation. That's the language of Egypt, about two thousand years ago. Um, and this was apparently treasured in one of the earliest monasteries in Egypt. Now, some people say these are lost Christian gospels, but in the early early centuries, some of the leaders would have said the problem is not that they were lost. The problem was getting rid of them because actually they were widely circulated and they were read all over the known uh, Roman Empire from what is today France and England Italy, Spain, Africa, Egypt, to Syria. I mean, these texts were widely known and circulated, as were the others. But these particular texts apparently upset the Archbishop of Alexandria. In the year 367, at Easter time, he sent a letter out to Christians all over Egypt. He said, I want you to get rid of those illegitimate secret texts that you like so much. You may keep 27 of them. Now, interestingly, the 27 he said you could keep, he actually called them the springs of salvation. That's the earliest list we have of the 27 books that we now call the New Testament. Strikingly. But the other books that were in the monastery library, somebody apparently disobeyed the archbishop and took over 50 books from the library and put them in this big jar six feet high, sealed it and buried it out by a cliff where the monks used to go to meditate and pray. And there they were found 1,600 years later in 1945. Even 200 years before the archbishop did that, another Christian leader named Irenaeus, living in what is now France, was very troubled that members of his congregation loved these, what he also called, illegitimate secret writings. Um, And he said that the people who liked writings like that were actually heretics. They weren't really Christians as they claimed to be. He said, the heretics say they have more gospels than there really are, but they really have no gospel that is not full of blasphemy. Irenaeus insisted that even though there were many gospels that were circulating, only four could be authentic and you can guess what they are. They're the ones that we know in the New Testament and call them Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you asked him why, he said, well, there are four winds and there are four corners of the universe. And therefore, there can only be four gospels. It's sort of a scientific approach. (laughs) Um, And if you asked him, well, why these four, why not others? He said, well, these are written by eyewitnesses of the events about Jesus and his followers. Now, scholars today are not certain about that. I mean, many people think that they're written late to be written by actual eyewitnesses of the accounts they record, but they may have been written by people who heard oral tradition from those who did see them. We don't know. In any case, the Gospels of the New Testament are attributed to Jesus' disciples. But so are the Gospels that were just found, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Thomas. So when I got to graduate school, some of my professors were were starting to compare sort of what is it about these Gospels that is different, or think, from the Gospels of the New Testament. Um, And some of them had already noticed, of course, that the Gospel of Thomas is not a narrative like the New Testament Gospels. It doesn't tell you a story of the baptism of Jesus or the healings or the crucifixion of the resurrection. In fact, it seems to be written for people who already know those traditions and are familiar with them. What it is, actually, is a list of the sayings of Jesus, just simply a list of sayings. Now, the first thing that was really startling is that many sayings in the Gospel of Thomas are identical with sayings in Luke and Matthew. There's the parable of the sower, of the man who went out to sow. There's a parable of a treasure found in a field. There's a parable of the um, of dinner party uh, and so forth. There's sayings like, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, which we find in Luke. So p- some people said, well maybe, wait a minute, maybe it's not a false gospel. Maybe it's a very early gospel. Maybe this is Maybe this is a kind of collection of sayings of Jesus that Matthew and Luke used when they wrote their Gospels. And they wrote them, we think, about uh, 40 years after the death of Jesus, something like that. But as we continued to look, and whether some people said maybe this is the source that they used, because we do think they used a written source of the sayings of Jesus, which scholars call the Q source. Now most of us would say it's not the source they used, but whoever put together the Gospel of Thomas collection of sayings of Jesus seems to have used the kind of source or the same source that Matthew used and Luke used because so many of the sayings are absolutely identical. But then there are other sayings that are quite different and quite new and unfamiliar. Uh, One of the ones I liked a lot uh, is saying number 70, which goes like this. Uh, Jesus said, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. Anyway, there are many strange and powerful sayings here that require interpretation. So when we began to look at, at the Gospel of Thomas again and began to compare it with the gospels of the New Testament. This is what you find. If you underline everything in the Gospel of Thomas that is the same as what you find in Matthew and Luke, you would have underlined about a third of the whole Gospel of Thomas. So there's a lot of it that we already know. Now if you underline, say that in red pencil, and then if you took a blue pencil and you underlined everything in the Gospel of Thomas you find in the Gospel of John, which comes from, we think, a rather different tradition, you'd find, again, um, another large portion of the Gospel of Thomas would be underlined. Now, it's very hard to tell what in the Gospel of Thomas, or the other Gospels in the New Testament, for that matter, actually, for sure, comes from the teachings of Jesus, um, because it's hard to verify that independently. But this, I think, is really important whatever it tells us about the teaching of Jesus, it tells us a great deal about the early Christian movement and the followers of Jesus and what they were talking about and arguing about in the, in the decades after the death of Jesus. And what I'd like to persuade you in the few minutes we have is that if you take the Gospel of Thomas and you compare it with the Gospel of John in the New Testament, you can listen in on a very intense contentious conversation. I mean, you could really say it's an argument between followers of Jesus at the end of the first century, probably around the year 80 to 90, that's, that's what, about 60 years after the death of Jesus when the Gospel of John apparently was written, most people think. And, and Jesus's followers are intensely discussing two important questions. The questions are this, who is Jesus? And what is the good news? What is the gospel about him? So, if we look at that question, when you look at the gospels of of Thomas and John, the first thing you notice is how much they have in common. I mean, uh, the gospel of Thomas and the gospel of John are different from Mark's gospel and Matthew's and Luke's to some extent, because in, in the gospels of Mark and Matthew and Luke, They claim to tell you primarily what Jesus taught in his public teaching when he was teaching thousands of people on the hills of Galilee. Um, The Gospel of Thomas, like the Gospel of John, as I said, it assumes that you already know a lot of that, that you know the story, you know a lot of the public teaching. And what each of these Gospels claims to do is give you, in addition secret teaching or private teaching that he gave his disciples when they were alone. Like in the Gospel of John, from chapter 13 to 18, there's the so-called upper room discourses, which, according to John, are are discourses that Jesus spoke to his disciples when they were in private, when they were alone. And the Gospel of Thomas, as you noticed, begins by saying, well, these are the secret sayings which, which Jesus spoke and which Thomas wrote down. So these are things Jesus taught privately. Um, They both then claim to offer a kind of advanced level teaching for people who've already received the earlier teaching. Second, when they talk about what they claim is the secret teaching of Jesus, uh, that teaching has certain similarities in the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Thomas. It's different from, say, Mark. In Mark's Gospel, if you say, what is the good news Jesus has to preach? It's right in chapter 1, uh, one uh, Mark one fifteen. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is coming soon. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the, the good news, according to Mark, is that the kingdom is going to come. It's going to come very soon. The end of time is approaching uh, when, w- will, when God will judge the world and transform it. But the Gospel of John suggests that what Jesus really meant is that the kingdom of God um, is a kind of, instead of being a a cosmic cataclysm that comes at the end of time, is actually a present and ongoing spiritual reality which can be found here and now. Now, if you go to the Gospel of Thomas, then you find something similar. Uh, For example, in saying 13, according to the Gospel of Thomas, the saying is this, Jesus says, um, if those who lead you say to you, look, the kingdom is in the sky, then the birds will get there first. If they say it's in the ocean, then the fish will get there first. This is kind of a, uh, a gentle ridicule of people taking it uh, extremely literally. And it says, rather, the kingdom of God is inside you and it's outside of you. And when you come to know yourselves, then you will be known, and you will know that it is you who are the sons of the living Father." What this suggests is that the kingdom of God is not a place up in heaven, and it's not simply a time which happens at the end of ordinary cosmic time, but that the kingdom of God is a state of being, almost. It's a state of awareness uh, in which one lives in the presence of God. Uh, awareness of one's own relation to God. So saying one thirteen has the disciples say, well, if it's not coming at the end of time, how do you look for it? Uh, the disciples say to Jesus, when will the end come? When is the end of time going to come? And Jesus, according to the Gospel of Thomas, says, well, do you know about the beginning? Why are you looking for the end? Look, go, go and look back to the beginning and then you will know the end. And then Jesus says something even stranger. He says, blessed is the one who came, comes into being before he comes into being. What does that mean? Uh, because if you say, well, what was there in the beginning of time or before the beginning of time, what do we know about that anyway? This author assumes that you know Genesis and expects you to know that he's referring to Genesis, uh, which says that in the beginning, before the universe is created, before the world is created, what is there? According to Genesis, it reads like this. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And of course, many first century rabbis would have said, well, what is that light? Of course, it's not the light of the sun and the moon. They haven't even been created yet, according to the story. That light that, is, that exists before the universe comes into being is is an image of the divine energy, the divine divine presence that brought all things into being. So according to the Gospel of Thomas, when the disciples say, who is Jesus? He basically says that he is, is one who comes from that divine light that came into being before the universe. In fact, it brought the universe into being, this light of God, the energy of God. According to the Gospel of Thomas, saying 77, Jesus says, I am the light that is before all things. I am all things. All things come forth from me. All things return to me. Split a piece of wood, and I am there. Lift up a rock, and you will find me there. So it's as though Jesus speaks as a voice from the divine light, the divine energy which permeates Everything in the universe, even the rocks and the stones. Now the Gospel of John 2, as you know, says of Jesus, has Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. It speaks of, of him as the light that enlightens everyone coming into the world. So when Thomas interprets Jesus as the light this way, and probably John 2, he probably has in mind what his contemporaries associated with the story, because they, uh, for example, would read the, the prophecies of the prophet Ezekiel. And when Ezekiel said he saw the Lord sitting on, a dev- on the throne in heaven, the question is, what did he look like? Well, of course, in, in Jewish tradition, one cannot make an image of God. It is forbidden to see God as a human image or any kind of image. So what did, what did the prophet see when he saw, he glimpsed the Lord on the throne? According to Ezekiel, what he saw was light. He saw flashes of lightning. It was like the sun shining. It was like jewels. It was like every brilliant image you can can name. He evokes and saying, God could only be expressed as glory. Uh, That's the Hebrew word kavod. It means the radiance of God. God is manifested uh, as divine light. So people who, who understood the passages that way would say, well, okay, so when... When it says in Genesis that God created Adam in his own image, what does it mean? I mean, if this God has no image, what does it mean? And they would, they would have said, well, it means that God created us uh, with the divine energy, the divine light, and that is the image of God within us. It's this, this divine light that, that pervades everything. So how then do we find access to God? Uh, according to the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus says, well, you have to look for it. But when you when you look for it, you can find it, not just in Jesus, but you can also find it in yourself. So according to the, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel, the good news, is not only about Jesus, which it is, but it's also about you. It's also about all of us um, because the message of the, of the Gospel, according to the Gospel of Thomas, is that we all come forth from that divine light. And we're all created in the image of God. And that divine energy which, from which we come forth is a kind of hidden link between ourselves and God. Although, of course, as you know, we can ordinarily be completely unaware of it. People can entirely blot it out and be oblivious of it. Um, and then we only think of ourselves in terms of how we differ from each other, how different we are in gender, in, in ethnicity, in social status, political affiliation, all of the ways we're different. But the Gospel of Thomas says, yes, but when you come to know who you really are, then you know how, that we are deeply connected, because we all share this deep kinship with each other, and in fact, with God, We know that we're children of God, connected in that way. So there's a famous passage in the Gospel of Thomas where Jesus teaches the disciples and says, well, if people ask you the questions about your identity, for example, if you are going into a foreign country, they will say, where are you from? Uh, who are you? And how can you um, identify yourself? Those are the questions, Jesus says, This is the way you should answer them if the questions are asked on a spiritual level. He says, if people say to you, where do you come from? You don't mention your hometown. You say, we come from the light, the place where the light came into being in the beginning of time. And if they say to you, well, who are you then? Instead of giving your name or mine, you say, we are children of the light, children of the living God. So the good news of the Gospel of Thomas is that the disciple finally comes to see that he or she is a child of God, in a sense, like Jesus, because all of us are created in the divine image. Now, you can see that Thomas says a lot that is similar to the Gospel of John. Of course, the Gospel of John also, of course, says, if you want to understand the Gospel, don't look to the end of time, go back to the beginning. Right. So John begins at the beginning. Remember those famous words? In the beginning um, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, and then, apparently, this, the beginning of the Gospel of John refers, of course, to the beginning of Genesis, to the saying, same saying, let there be light. And the Gospel of John, like Thomas, pictures Jesus as the light that enlightens everyone coming into the world, the divine light. I am the light of the world. If anyone comes to me, he will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life." But now, now you begin to see that there's a practical question on which these two authors divide. The question is, well, how do you find the light? Uh, John offers quite a different answer from Thomas. So in fact, these authors apparently share a lot of common teaching. I've come to think that the author of the Gospel of John knows very well the kind of teaching you could find in the Gospel of Thomas. And he thinks that Thomas's Gospel is leading you in the wrong direction. And in fact that he apparently may have written his own Gospel precisely to set people straight and show them how wrong this other kind of teaching is. So to do that, the Gospel of of John also begins with Genesis. And it says, well, yes, Jesus, uh, Jesus is the divine light that exists from the beginning of time before the beginning of the world. But, but the Gospel of John goes on to insist that before Jesus came into the world, that divine light was completely inaccessible. Nobody could see it. According to the prologue of the Gospel of John, the world was entirely sunken in darkness and all human beings were lost in sin until that moment when Jesus came into the world, as, as the author of John says in 1.14, and the divine light became flesh and dwelt among us, became an actual human person in Jesus of Nazareth. Only then, says John, we saw his glory. That is, we saw him shining. It's the same word, we saw the light shining. The glory of the only begotten Son of the Father. Now, this is crucial. This is John's favorite word for Jesus, only begotten. The Greek is monogenes. It means utterly unique. So it's translated either only begotten or God's only son. It means he only has one, and that is a point that John wants to emphasize. Now why? Because you know what Thomas says, you can immediately know what John is driving at or what John's implying. He's basically saying, look, God has only one son. And you and I cannot be children of God in a way comparable to Jesus. We can be called children of God in baptism. But this is not the way Jesus is the son of God. John emphasizes all throughout the gospel that Jesus is utterly unique, the only son of God. Everyone in the world is lost in darkness and sin and Jesus alone saves them from sin and damnation. You remember those famous words uh, in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not die. But whoever does not believe in the name of the only begotten Son um, is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of God's only Son. And John wants to make that very clear. Believe in Jesus as the only begotten Son, and you're saved. Do not believe that God, Jesus is the only Son, and you are lost in damnation. So what are you supposed to believe? John's Gospel is not uh, too subtle about this. Um, John, John's Gospel does not have a lot of the teaching you will find, say, in Matthew, like the Sermon on the Mount, it doesn't have the prodigal son as you find in Luke. It doesn't have that kind of teaching. What does Jesus teach in the Gospel of John? Think about it. I mean, in John's Gospel, Jesus is teaching at what scholars call it, Jesus, what Jesus is saying all the time is what the, the scholars call the I am sayings. Right? Jesus is saying things like this, only in John. I am the light of the world. I am the door, I am the vine, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, I'm whatever you need. Uh, I am the spiritual one. And finally, according to chapter eight, Jesus says, you must believe that I am. Well, it's hard to translate. It either says you must believe that I am, or I am he. Well, who? In chapter eight, it's very clear. I am, of course, is the name understood that God spoke to Moses. That Jesus is basically claiming the divine name. That Jesus, according to the Gospel of John, claims, uh, you know, before he says to the, to, to his his uh, followers, before Abraham existed, I am, meaning he is the divine one. And it says at that point, people picked up stones to kill him for making himself equal with God. But that's John's point. Jesus is not exactly equal with God, but Jesus is God and manifests him in person. And at the end of the Gospel, it's Thomas who gets the point and and falls on his knees and says to Jesus, now I know who you are. You are my Lord and my God. So that's John's version of the good news, that Jesus is God incarnate. Now the bad news, so to speak, is that the rest of us are nothing like Jesus. So you remember how in Thomas uh, Jesus says to the disciples, you come from the light, you also come from the light. In John, Jesus emphasizes his, his uniqueness. In chapter six he says, you come from below. I come from above, you come from below. I am not from this world, you are from this world. And John goes on to say you must believe that Jesus alone is the only son of God, the only begotten one, but I think In closing, I just want to say, because John associates Thomas with with teaching he thinks is wrong, he pictures Thomas um, in a different way than the other Gospels. If you look at Matthew and Luke, Thomas is a name on a list of the 12 disciples, right? Um, But in John, uh, Thomas becomes the character that we know as who? Doubting Thomas. Now, how does he get that? That's only in John, by the way. He does it by three quick episodes that work like this. The first one is in chapter 11, when when the disciples are going to Jerusalem, and Jesus says he's going to raise a man from the dead, Lazarus, and Thomas doesn't believe it. Here, Thomas is the one who never gets it, has no faith, doesn't believe anything, he's really obtuse, he's the doubter. He's the one who doesn't believe anything he can't verify for himself. So Thomas says, well, we'll go with him, we'll die with him. Thomas is is depressed and despairing as John pictures him. Second, when Jesus says to his disciples in chapter 14 that he's going back to the Father, he says, well, you know where I'm going, you know the way. Thomas says, we don't know where you're going, how can we know the way? And according to John's Gospel, Jesus turns to Thomas and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is that clear, Thomas? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because apparently, this is aimed against the teaching of people who suggest that you can find the way to God through the divine light that you may also contain. And finally, uh, John writes that famous scene in which Jesus actually comes back from the dead to chastise Thomas. But notice what happens. The other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, say that after Jesus died, he appeared to the, to the eleven disciples. Now you know who they are, and Thomas is among them, as, as, as Luke names them. There is one missing. You know who he is. That's Judas Iscariot. But Jesus appears to the eleven and he gives them his authority to continue his work. Now look at what John does with the same story. In chapter 20, uh, it says this, Jesus came back to his disciples after he died and he did three things. He, he said, you are my apostles, my representatives. He breathed the Holy Spirit upon them, he conveyed the Holy Spirit, and he gave them his, his power. Now it says, the the next line is interesting, it says, this is John only, but Thomas was not with them when he came. Oh, so Thomas didn't receive the Holy Spirit, wasn't given authority, is not a real disciple, as John pictures him. That's interesting. And you notice that when the other disciples tell Thomas about the encounter with Jesus, what does he say? I don't believe it. So here he's pictured as somebody who doesn't have faith, Because the Gospel of Thomas says the way that you must find God is by seeking and finding for yourself. It's not a matter of faith, it's a matter of experiential coming to understand through your own uh, discovery. So what the picture you have of Thomas in the Gospel of John, I I suggest, is a caricature of the person who wants to find out from experience uh, what is spiritual truth. And the way that John pictures it, it's a stubborn refusal to believe. Well, you know what happens in the Gospel of John. Jesus appears and, and says to Thomas, Thomas, believe. Stop doubting. You know, what's wrong with you? And he and he and he says, Here I am, you can verify me from verify my the reality of the resurrection from your own experience. And finally I think John must have written this with some satisfaction. He showed that Thomas finally gets it. He admits that he's wrong, and John was right. And he's overwhelmed, and he says to Jesus, Ah, now I see. Now I know who you really are. You're not, my, you're not like me. You're not another son of God. You are my Lord and my God. And so for John, this is the scene, is the climax that shows Thomas's. Uh, understanding of the fact that he's wrong and that that kind of teaching is wrong. Now, we can see that the Gospels of Thomas and John, just in conclusion, we'll open up a discussion, take what is a very similar kind of teaching in two different directions. What, what John does is emphasize Jesus as God's only son. Salvation comes only through faith in him as Lord and God. What Thomas does is urge spiritual seeking to discover the divine light that shines forth from Jesus, but also can shine forth from anyone created in the image of God, and in fact, throughout the entire universe. Now, it's interesting that in, in the decades after these gospels were written, and in 100 years after they were written, Many Christians were reading the Gospel of Thomas and John as if they were complementary, as if one were kind of the beginning teaching and the other were more advanced. And that was the way Christians read them for over a hundred years. But 200 to 300 years later, when Christian leaders like Athanasius decided to include John in the New Testament and exclude Gospels like Thomas, this changed very much the way we came to understand Christianity a couple thousand years later. Um, You know that orthodox Christianity developed in the direction of John's teaching. Uh, The orthodox creeds developed at Nicaea speak of Jesus as God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, that is, not, not created like other human beings, but rather ontologically different of one being with the Father. That is essentially the same as God. But it's too much of a story to go into how the creeds and the, the church developed. And for that, I'd like to open up our discussion today. Thank
0: you. Thank you, Dr. Pegels. You are listening to Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is author and theologian and Bible scholar Elaine Pegels. First question has to do with the reconciliation of your scholarship with the basics of Christian faith. You have written about your own walk in faith in your readings, in your writings, and uh, particularly about your being an evangelical Christian earlier in life and then the discoveries you made in graduate school and now your involvement in a, in a Christian community. Can you describe and discuss for us a little bit your own reconciliation of your scholarship with traditional Christian faith?
1: Well, yes, indeed. I mean, you know, there are many many communions of Christian faith throughout the world, as we all know, and many people today think that's an unfortunate 21st century aberration from an early Christian community which was much simpler in which everybody agreed. What we discover when we start to look at that early Christian community historically is that there have always been different ways of understanding the gospel. I'm not saying that these ways are all identical or equal or don't matter or anything, but simply to recognize that there are so many. And what that does is, for me, it challenges people who, who do claim to have the one tr- right interpretation which makes all other Christians to say nothing of non-Christians completely wrong. So uh, it, it allows me to be within a Christian community more comfortably than, than if I had to think that this was the only possible way of exploring Oh, paths to God.
0: Do you think the Bible will ever be, be reorganized to accept other writings?
1: <laughs> I don't think the Bible needs to be reorganized to accept other writings because the canon wasn't made to be a book anyway. It was made to be a list of writings to read in church. So what the canon is for was for people preaching. If you're you know, If you have a church like this, this is the this is the basic list from which you choose um, to proclaim the teachings of Jesus, and it's worked really well for that. These other texts really were never meant to be part of that kind of public teaching necessarily. They were read as supplements to it. I mean, many people point out that if Jesus was like other rabbis in the first century, he would have taught publicly one way and And he would have taught his disciples somewhat differently, as most spiritual teachers do, whether they're ministers or priests or rabbis or other teachers. So I don't think the canon was going to be changed. I don't think it needs to. But I I do think that some of us may want to sort of open up what we think of as Christianity and reflect on on a wider spectrum than we used to think
0: existed. From your research, have you found any implications that Western and Eastern religions have more similarities and commonalities than differences?
1: Well, that's interesting. You know, what, one thing you find is that the teachings in the Gospel of Thomas, some people say they sound a lot like Buddhist teachings. Is that interesting? And Thomas, is this an accident, is said to have been the disciple who went to India. And in India, people still claim to have his tomb. Um, he may have gone to India, and people have, many people have written to say, well, did Jesus go to India? Well, I think that's a, that's, that's a huge long shot, you know, to think a, a village rabbi like Jesus of Nazareth would have gone to India. But in the first and second century after his death, many people did go between India and, uh, and the Roman Empire. and. This kind of, you know, the Gospel of Thomas could be Jesus' teaching that went to India and was influenced by Buddhism, which was being preached and taught by Buddhists, you know, hundreds of years um, before the time of Jesus. So it's possible that there's influence there. On the other hand, this is a kind of esoteric teaching. It has a lot in common with Jewish mystical teaching that you find in Kabbalah. In fact, the image of the Gospel of Thomas really comes out of readings of Genesis that are very much read that way in in Jewish mystical tradition. Um, So this has a lot to do with, I would say, traditions that speak about the connection between God um, and us. I mean, let me just say, I'm talking too long about this, but orthodoxy is chiefly concerned with discriminating between the divine and the human. Orthodoxy stresses, you know, God is wholly other, in the words of Martin Buber, the theologian. And we are mere human creatures. And and esoteric tradition has always talked about the connections, the continuities. And those are not emphasized as much in orthodoxy. And that's what you do find in Thomas, which is not meant to be a teaching for everybody. It's meant to be a teaching for people who've already gone beyond that first level of faith.
0: Continuing in that same vein, a question about the Gospel of Thomas and universalism. Several in our audience wonder about uh, if in fact you could describe the Gospel of Thomas as setting forth a theology of universalism that all religions or all people uh, are accepted and embraced by God. And is that limited solely to the Gospel of Thomas, or could it be found in the canonical Gospels?
1: Well, that's a really interesting question. I mean, this, does, this is based on a reading of Genesis, You know that, that God creates humankind in his image, and therefore that all beings, all humans, are understood to be created in the divine image and have that access to God potentially. Um, you know, you find the same thing in the canonical Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew has Jesus say, you are the light of the world. You know, don't hide the light. The light should be shown. The Gospel of Luke has Jesus say, the kingdom of God is within you, Luke 17:21. So you find hints of this in the Gospels of the New Testament, but they're kind of like a, uh, a recessive motif, and the dominant motif is something else. And the Gospel of Thomas brings out themes that are only kind of implied and suggested in Matthew and Luke.
0: Why has the scholarship that you represent, along with scholars of the Jesus Seminar and others, why has that scholarship been so clearly ignored by the Christians that have been so dominant in politics in the last several years? And ignored also by the highly successful and growing TV and evangelical megachurches.
1: Well, we should ask the people who who represent those groups, because I don't really know. (laughs) Except that I think people who have a stake in saying this is the way, this is the teaching of Christ, and all the other people who claim to represent it are just wrong, uh, don't like the suggestion, which our research inevitably uncovers, that there are different ways to approach this. Even in the New Testament, you've got four Gospels, not one. So you have different ways to approach it, um, and Christians have always done that. But I, I know there are people who don't like that, who don't like that, because you know, everyone who doesn't do it in my way is, is wrong, and we know a lot about that.
0: Several questions about the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Are there any unique insights uh, uh, ascribed to her uh, that are in, uh, related to her gender? perhaps, and where would I learn more about the Gospel of Mary Magdalene?
1: The Gospel of Mary Magdalene was found in the 1890s in Upper Egypt, and it is an ancient text which suggests that Mary Magdalene, I mean, you know, know, Dan Brown took off on this and suggested that Mary Magdalene was Jesus' lover and wife and mother of his children. Nothing like that is found in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene or the ancient texts, but in these ancient texts and the Gospel of Thomas too, Mary Magdalene is seen as a disciple She's seen as one of the disciples. However, she's challenged, particularly by one of the disciples who doesn't like her being there, and that one is Peter. And Peter keeps saying, even in the Gospel of Thomas, he says to Jesus, tell Mary to leave us. She is a woman and not worthy of spiritual life. And, and, and Jesus uh, replies that he will transform her anyway. There, there's, a strange saying in, in the Gospel of Thomas about the way that Mary will become a male, uh, which suggests that she will become equivalent to the way that males are treated. But other Gospels suggest that that she is one of the early disciples and that she could speak as a disciple. But the Gospel of Mary suggests that that she that women could be included as disciples and active members of the of the churches, and that suggestion is not appreciated by some, as you know, and that gospel was roundly condemned by many. It's published by Karen King at Harvard uh, in a little paperback called The uh, The Gospel of Mary of Magdala. So it's quite easy to get, and it's a fascinating little text.
0: Several questions about the other great historical figure of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, and where he fits in in this conflict between the Gospels of John and Thomas.
1: Well, you know, Paul is a fascinating character, and Paul, uh, like John, speaks about Jesus not as a human being, the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, but speaks of Jesus as a divine being that comes down from heaven. At least in Philippians 2, he uses this hymn that speaks about Jesus as, um, you know, uh, as, as a divine being in human form, he says, you know? comes down in human form. Rather like John speaking about the divine word that becomes flesh and dwelt among us. So John, like uh, Paul, has a very high view of Jesus. And so it's an example of the different perceptions we find in the early Christian communities, I would say.
0: And then this final question. Given the variety of ideas and creeds which make up Christian expression, would you identify one unifying aspect of this particular faith system. This particular faith system. That would be the Christian faith system, Christianity.
1: Ah, well, one aspect that's very hard to do. Um,
0: this is what I have to do, preaching each Sunday. So go ahead.
1: <laughs> well, maybe, maybe I'll pass it to you. <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, one thing I want to say about these gospels is that when I was taught about them in graduate school, my professor, who's a wonderful man, Christer Stendhal, actually a Lutheran bishop. Um, Christer, you said to me recently, well, you know, before you wrote about these, we just thought these Gospels were weird. (laughs) And, um, And so what we were taught was that these are the weird ones. These are the bad ones, the fake ones, the Gnostic ones. And the other ones are the real ones, you know, the ones in the New Testament. And what we now see, you know, about 25 years later, is that they were actually read together. It's not that you would take the gospel of Thomas and throw out John, but that people, as I said, read them together as a kind of collage, the way Christians today read Paul, they read Matthew, they read Luke, they read the epistle of James and the book of Revelation. And even though these are all distinct perceptions about what's important about Christian faith, that's why I can't answer your question easily, Um, they're all understood to complement one another. And these texts were also, by many people, thought to do that. It's when people insisted on weeding out all of the inconvenient perceptions that didn't accord with what the bishops thought was the majority and the statement of faith that was written in particular creeds. Now, I like the creeds as it happens, but uh, I guess the question is how we should take them. Do we take them as if this is the only way to understand Christian faith or that this is one way uh, that many of us do?
0: In your writings, I think you point to the... uh the great commandment that to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself as the central teaching of the Gospels. Would that be true of the Gospel of Thomas as well?
1: Well, indeed, it says, love your brother uh, as the apple of your eye, that, that the teaching about love is, is absolutely fundamental, and I would think that that distinguishes what at least I see in the Gospels more than, than creedal statements, yeah. is the action that people take.